come to the last message on the book of 1 Thessalonians. And you might wonder, well, where do we go from here? Uh, we're going to do little short things for the next couple of weeks. Next week, I'm going to look at the book of Philemon. Uh, it's an interesting little book, one chapter, and uh, so it's a one-off one kind of uh, message. I, I look at Th Th Philemon and say, I wonder why in the world is that in the scriptures? It's just, you know, uh, just a conversation between Paul and Philemon about a runaway slave. Uh, not too spiritual in some ways, uh, just kind of everyday kind of conflicts and stuff. But we'll look at that. The following week, I'm going to do another one-off on prayer from James uh, because we've been focusing on calling uh, Grace Point to pray. And so we'll just look at what it means to be a, a praying church. Then the third week in November, the week before Thanksgiving, you're going to preach. Uh, we're going to take the service, and because it's time to give thanks to the Lord, we're going to give you opportunity to think through the year and to stand to your feet where you are in the auditorium and to give a word of thanksgiving and praise to the Lord for what he has done, perhaps specifically in, in your life or in some way over the last year. So that'll be a sharing service where uh, I get to hear you uh, praise the Lord and give honor and glory to the Lord for what he's done. So that's the Sunday before uh, Thanksgiving. Then, believe it or not, we're into Advent. And Advent, we'll do a series of Advent messages that'll lead us to the end of the year. So that's where we're going. So let's wrap up 1 Thessalonians this morning. It's been an interesting book. So much of it is related to how uh, pastor and people or apostle and the church plant related to one another. Last week, we looked at the kind of the core and the center of the book, which is focused on hope. This morning, we're looking at 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12 through the end of the chapter, verse 28. So if you have a Bible or an app on your phone, you might want to look, open that up. Five times in this section, the Apostle Paul addresses brothers and sisters. Verse 12, dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders. Verse 14, brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy. And then in verse 25, dear brothers and sisters, pray for us. It's pretty clear by these repeated references where he's addressing brothers and sisters that he's talking to the church in Thessalonica. And these are his final instructions to them uh, in this letter that he sends. He's giving instructions on how the church is to behave. And it's an interesting process as we look at it this morning. You look at it from three different perspectives. First of all, instructions on leadership, then a word to uh, 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 instructions on fellowship, and then instructions on worship. So we're going to dive in and look at, first of all, instructions on leadership. Verses 12 and 13. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. 
Now, essentially, this is, first of all, a word to the followers rather than the leaders. It's primarily focused upon how people ought to respond to leaders. So he's talking to everybody in the congregation, and he's saying to them that they are to uh, respect those who work hard, who are over you in the Lord, and admonish you. Some interesting words in that text when he says, respect those who are working hard among you. The word there in the Greek is a kind of an interesting word. It's the Greek word oida. And oida essentially means uh, perhaps to get to know. It's a, it's, a, it's a form of knowing, but it's more than simply head knowledge. I can say I know President Biden. I almost said the wrong word. President Biden. Uh, and you probably could say that too. But we know him only at a distance. We know him only uh, remotely. The word oida doesn't mean simply knowing somebody from a distance. It means getting to know them intimately. And what Paul is saying to the congregation, he's saying, you need to know your leaders. You need to get intimate with them. You need to hear their heart. You need to know how to respond to them because you are familiar with them which means you don't necessarily put them up on pedestals and, you know, kind of, oh, they're the leaders. No, no, no. There's a, there's a relationship there, a relationship in which you get to know their heart, you get to know their vision, you get to know what they're thinking, and you don't keep them at arm's length. Then he says also that you are to remember those. Uh, the idea of remembering what they say, remembering and recalling what they're uh, talking about, and, and don't forget them. And I think probably this also includes the idea of don't forget to pray for your leaders. And then it says recognize them or uh, follow them. There's a sense in which the recognition is more than simply, yeah, I heard you. It's the idea of responding and, and the dialogue that goes on there. So Paul begins by talking to the congregation. But in talking to the congregation, essentially he refers to what the leaders are supposed to be and do. So it's not only a word of advice to the congregation, it's a word of advice to leaders as well. Respect and regard for leaders is not automatic. It's learned. It's earned. The apostle consistently refers to those he is ministering to as brothers and sisters. He doesn't even use the concept of him being an apostle. He puts himself on the same level before the Lord. Christ is the head of the church. And as Jesus taught, leadership is all about servanthood. There's a lot of discussion these days about the nature of leadership and whether leadership is transactional or transformative. Transactional means I'm leading you, I'm, I'm, I'm in this position because of what I can get out of it and what will benefit me. It's a transaction. I will scratch your back only if you scratch mine. That's not what Jesus taught. He taught a transformational leadership, which is I am here to see that I can lift you and transform you into the person that God wants you to be. And so the role of the leader is to bring transformation into the life of others as they begin to follow Christ. Paul says in one place, uh, follow me as I follow Christ. And he is wanting them to follow Christ. 
So it talks about the fact that the leaders are to work hard. Respect is earned through perspiration. These are no armchair generals. They are leading by example and getting their hands dirty. And then he says that they're to provide leadership. The word there is a Greek word which means to stand before, to go before, to go first, to preside. In other words, it's kind of like uh, when you're moving into battle, the first one out of the trench to attack the enemy is going to be the leaders, leads the charge, and the rest follow behind because they see the example. That's what Paul is trying to communicate here. And then he says that they are to admonish and teach. Again, an interesting word. It's the word that's also used in Colossians, uh, where Paul was writing to the, the church in Colossae, and he talks about teaching and admonishing, and he gives them this word. So everywhere we go, we tell everyone about Christ. We warn them. That's the Greek word. Uh, warn them and teach them with all wisdom God has given us. For we want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. The idea of leadership with the goal of presenting everyone complete, full, mature in Christ. That's the word that Paul gives to the leaders. So, a word to the leaders and the followers. But there's also one sentence in that text that focuses, I think, mutually to both, where he says, live in peace with each other. One of the things that's become a burden to me over the last several weeks is the whole concept that we are to be peacemakers that we are given the ministry of reconciliation. And we live in a world where there are all kinds of factions and conflicts. And in the center of all of that, I believe that the Lord is calling Christians, the local church, to be agents of reconciliation. And as he says here, that we are to live at peace with one another. We may have to learn how to be peacemakers. We may have to learn how to take one side who's on this side and one side who's on the other side and stand in the middle and see if we can bring them together. And it's easy, I think, for me and perhaps for you just to basically wash our hands of it and say, this has nothing to do with me. But as believers in Christ, we are called to be peacemakers. I was listening to the Beatitudes this morning uh, on the uh, app that I use for devotions. And in that app, he went through the Beatitudes, and it was, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. But the translation that they were using, instead of saying blessed, they used the word congratulations. Congratulations, peacemakers, because you are the children of God. And in this text, he basically says to both the leaders and the followers, we must be involved in being peacemakers. William Barclay in his commentary says, it is impossible that the gospel of love should be preached in an atmosphere poisoned by hate. 
John Stott, in his commentary, says, in too many churches, leaders, leadership and congregation are at loggerheads, which is, a, which is painful to those involved, inhibiting the church's life and growth and damaging to its public image. By contrast, happy is the church family in which leaders, pastors, and people recognize that God's call, uh, God calls different believers to different ministries with diligence and humility and gives to each other the respect and love which their God-appointed labor demands. Jesus said, Lo, the world watching can look at us and know we are believers, know we are followers of Christ by our love. And that love means that we must strive to be peacemakers. Then in verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul shifts from leadership to the fellowship, the body at large. Leaders can't do the work of ministry by, itself, by themselves. So Paul adds this section to talk about the ministry of the body of Christ. And he writes, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always be kind to each other and to everyone else. He gets specific here and he addresses ministry to some special needs that arise within the body of Christ. Warn those who are idle. This might be a follow-up with what he said in the fourth and uh, early part of the fifth chapter where he talks about those who are waiting for the return of the Lord and, and so anticipated his coming and therefore didn't have to plan or look ahead or, or do anything as far as providing for their own needs because the Lord was coming back and he says that's not the way we approach the return of the Lord. Here, warning those who are at idle, perhaps it's laziness or idleness, but the laziness and idleness might also come from a lack of purpose and direction. And so part of what Paul is calling the leaders to do is to help those who are in the body of Christ, discover their purpose, discover their meaning of life, discover their calling. Every one of us have a calling from the Lord to serve him in some way or another. And rather than moving about their Christian life aimlessly and undisciplined, which causes disorder, and uh, you know the word here can be used as uh, one of a, sa a soldier who's kind of marching out of line and to help them to get back into into the, the body where they're working together. So he says, warn those who are idle. Then he says, encourage the, the timid. Uh, it's a compound word, meaning little of heart or little of soul. And it refers to those who, find, who might be discouraged or depressed. Every one of us in life, somewhere along the line, hits the wall and finds ourselves discouraged or depressed. And part of the reason for the body of Christ is that we can come alongside one another and help them through those dark times. That's the function of the body, to encourage the timid or to encourage those who, who are struggling with their direction in life. And then he says, help the weak. New believers, perhaps, that are easily tempted, uh, might be those who are spiritually weak, 
but it can also apply to those who are physically weak. In other words, the sick. Part of the function of the body of Christ is to care for the sick, to care for those who are disenfranchised. It might be those who are economically weak, uh, who are powerless and poor. I drove back to Gig Harbor this Thursday, Friday, and met with a fellow that I have known since 1974. He pastored the Free Methodist Church in Springfield, Illinois, and I pastored the Evangelical Free Church. And we met with one another and became friends. And so every week we'd go to Mellow Cream Donuts and have a donut and coffee and share our lives and share what God was doing with one another. Turned out that he uh, moved and uh, went to Winona Lake for Light and Life Men, worked for them. And uh, I stayed in Springfield. And then when I decided I was moving out here to the West Coast, to Port Orchard, I sent him a note saying I was moving. He says, that's funny, I'm moving out there too. And he ended up serving a church in Rainier Valley. And Joe has a tremendous heart for the poor. And he worked with the poor in Rainier Valley and had a tremendous ministry. And he's writing a book. It's called uh, A Missional Pastor because he senses that oftentimes... Uh, we as pastors have lost our hearts for the poor and the disenfranchised. And what Paul is saying here is that we, as the body together, are to warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, and to help the weak. Spiritually weak, physically weak, or perhaps even poor and economically weak and powerless. But then he adds to this, the general principles that ought to be applied to the, the congregation as a whole. Because he says that we should uh, uh, be patient with everyone. Oh, be patient with me, God's not through yet. We can say that to each other in the body of Christ and recognize that I'm not what I want to be, but thank God I'm not what I once was. And we commit one to one another that we'll encourage one another in an atmosphere of, of patience and positivity to cultivate patience. Renounce retaliation. Someone hurts us in the body of Christ, and what, do we want to get back at them, or are we willing to, to forgive and forget and, and to move on? And then he says, pursue kindness. Wouldn't you just love to be a part of a church that's really into all of this? Paul evidently understood that the Thessalonians had the same kind of troubles and problems that we do. Otherwise, he wouldn't have written these instructions to them. We oftentimes put the churches and the scriptures on a, on a pedestal. But no, they are like us, and they needed to be challenged along these lines. Finally, then, in this text, in verses 16 through 22, Paul now shifts from uh, instructions to fellowship to instructions on worship, verses 16 through 22. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. The verbs in this text are all in the plural, which would indicate that this is the practice of not private prayer, but corporate activities. So when he says practice praise, he's not talking about you going off into your closet and 
singing to the Lord. He's talking about corporate worship where we come together to praise and to rejoice always. Christians are to have continual joy as opposed to continual happiness. Happiness depends on what is happening, the circumstances in which we find ourselves. We can sometimes be quite unhappy with the circumstances in which we find ourselves. We can be unhappy with our circumstances, but joy is something which is capable of transcending circumstances. Happiness flows from the externals of life. So if the externals are negative, we can be unhappy. If they're positive, we can be happy. Unlike that, joy flows from the core of our very existence outward. It's because of what is within us imbued uh, imbued to us by the, the Holy Spirit. Happiness comes to us. Joy comes from us. It comes because we know that all things work together for good. We know that the Lord is able to keep that which we've committed unto him. We know that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If we know that, there's an internal sense of joy which transcends whatever the circumstances are around us. So we come together and we give praise. We give thanks to God because the Spirit of God wells that up from within us. Then he says we're to pray without ceasing. Persistent prayer. Prayer and praise are closely related. Often a believer finds that in prayer, he is able to remove the barriers from, for joy. Thomas Kelly said, he's trying to talk about how we can pray consistently or persistently without ceasing. He said, there is a way of ordering our mental life on a more than one level at once. On one level, we might be thinking, discussing, seeing, calculating, meeting all the demands of the external affairs. But deep within, behind the scenes, at the more profound level, we may be in prayer and adoration, songs and worship and gentle receptiveness to the divine breathing. There's a sense in which even as we walk through life, from within can come that settled sense of it is well with my soul. How's that work? You've heard the story of Brother Lawrence who had the job of washing dishes. He decided that he was going to live his life washing dishes as as a sacrifice of praise and adoration to the Lord in prayer. And he learned over time to be able to do that. Frank Laubach, who was a a, a missionary to the Philippines, when he uh, decided that he wanted to have a more intimate walk with the Lord, he began to do what he called the game with minutes. He would choose to do one minute each hour through the day where he would concentrate on the Lord. And then he began to expand that until the point where he was able to kind of live his life in that space of joy and communion with the Lord, no matter what else he was doing. Pray persistently. Rejoice always. And then the third one is give thanks. Give thanks. What are you thankful for? We're coming up to the time when we set aside to give thanks. We can thank God for the obvious things of life, our food, every 24 
minutes, people starve to death of malnutrition uh, in, in the world. So we can give thanks for the basic obvious things that when we go to the grocery store that we have food. These days, sometimes you go through the grocery store and the favorite brand that you want isn't there. How do you respond to that? How do you respond to that? You still have all the many selections, and we can give thanks for what we have, not what's not on the shelf. We can thank God for the more obscure things in life. Have you ever thought about your nose? Especially the way it's attached to your face? Let's suppose that uh, your nose was put on your face upside down. Every time you sneeze, you'd blow your hat off. And when it rains, you would drown. Or you'd take a shower. We were with the ladies on Monday, and somebody said, uh, you couldn't take a shower because you'd be drowning in the shower. And then the ladies went off into some conversations about how they do in showers. And I, I thought, well, okay, this is going a little far here. But we can give thanks for the more obscure things that sometimes we never give thought to. There's so many things to give thanks for. Then we can thank God for the objectionable things in life. Corey Tenboom tells in her, her biography about how there were fleas in the Nazi prison where they were. And she was grumbling and griping about the fleas until she suddenly realized by uh, her sister calling attention to the fact that the fleas were keeping the guards from coming into their cell and finding their Bibles. And so even the things that sometimes seem objectionable and not pleasant can be things that we give thanks to the Lord for. Gratitude, giving thanks. The body of Christ is to be a thankful people. Then the fourth one. Keep the Spirit's fire. Don't quench the Spirit's fire. Fire refers to both passion and purity. How passionate are we as a congregation? 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 18 are not simply a separate list of 18 different practical admonitions. But there are a series of thoughts that climax with this phrase, don't put out the Spirit's fire. So you look at all that we've talked about to this point, and it culminates with if those things are not there, what happens is it begins to dampen the fire of the Spirit in the life of the body. And so Paul comes up to this culmination and he says, Don't put out the Spirit's fire. We cannot have great fire of the Spirit burning in our midst when we are cold toward one another or cold toward God or impatient or or wanting retribution and all the things that he's talking about because that puts out the, the, the work of the Spirit. How passionate are you? How hot does the Spirit of God burn? Jim Elliott, who was one of the martyred missionaries in Ecuador years ago, kept a journal. And in that journal, he comments on uh, Psalm 104.4, 4, 
which was uh, one of his verses that he was looking at during his devotions. And the text says, he makes his ministers a flame of fire. And he writes in his journal, am I ignitable? God deliver me from the dread of asbestos of other things. Saturate me with the oil that I may be a flame. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. Can we pray that? Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary in India for many years, a single missionary who had suffered from health issues and eventually died in India, uh, writes a lot of poetry, and I've, I've found them to be helpful. And one of these, she, she writes, from subtle love of softening things, from easy choices, weakenings, not thus our spirits fortified, not this way went the crucified, from all that dims thy Calvary, O Lamb of God, deliver me. Make me thy fuel. Fuel speaks of passion. And he says, don't put out the Spirit's fire. Don't treat prophecy with contempt, he says. In other words, when somebody has something to say which is, which is giving us some sense of direction for the future, and, and helping us to understand more deeply God's call for our life, we ought to be slow to crit be critical and to allow that spirit to speak. But then he contrasts that when he says, he gives words to first those who uh, have passion of the spirit, then he gives uh, instruction to those who by their enthusiasm, distort and abuse the Spirit's work. He says in the text, do not stifle the Holy Spirit, do not scoff at prophecies, but test everything that is said. Hold on to what is good and keep away from that which is evil. In other words, you have to be discerning when you're looking at these, these prophecies. There are some that, yeah, they, they ring authentically. And then there are others that kind of you know, fall off the edge of the table and they're not worth listening to. When we think about being a flame for the Lord, there's an interesting thing that comes from St. John of the Cross, which I think is helpful for us to look at as we think about whether we want to be passionately on fire for the Lord. Fire is not only about passion, but it's also about purity. And true knowledge of God always goes hand in hand with the painful process of coming to know ourselves. Uh, John of the Cross expresses it this way, by using a metaphor of uh, a log of wood being transformed into fire. As the wood burns, it becomes blackened, it cracks and it steams, all the knot holes and the flaws are exposed. If the log could speak, it would cry out, my seeking to become fire was a mistake. I'm now worse than when I started, black, ugly, and flawed. The log is the soul, and the fire is God's spirit. And the truth, of course, is that the log is not worse off than it was before. All the ugliness and the defects were present before they were only concealed. The only way the log can become fire is to be revealed honestly and openly 
for what it is in itself. The process is painful, but contrary to appearances, it is the mark of real growth in union with God. That is why good souls who are making spiritual progress and are aflame for God often feel they are regressing and getting further from God. When we say to the Lord, make me thy fuel, we can recognize that not only are we expressing a sense of passion, but that we are asking God to purify us. So as Paul gives these instructions to the church, I think it's so appropriate that here in this transition period of Grace Point Church, these words can be applied. And by the time the new lead pastor comes along, he will find a church that is passionate, pure, living according to these instructions that Paul gave, and a a congregation that is ready to see God move in some very significant ways. Paul wraps up the letter with these words. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God who calls you is faithful. He will do this. Do you have confidence that the Lord can do this in Grace Point? I trust you do because he is faithful and he will not leave a church abandoned. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for reminding us again of your grace, your mercy, your faithfulness, and you call us, Father, to be the the body of Christ, the representation of the kingdom of God here on earth. And we pray that individually we might commit ourselves to that. In Christ's name. As we um, learned today, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work, and live peacefully with each other. Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy. Encourage those who are timid. Take tender care of those who are weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to each other and to all people. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Do not scoff at prophecies, but test everything that is said. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. God will make this happen, for he who calls you is faithful. Dear brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a sacred kiss. I command you in the name of the Lord to read this letter to all the brothers and sisters. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. May God bless the reading of his word.